Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, today exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to find out more about our show, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello. Every week, uh, Kim and I get together with you to talk about the trends we find in the wine world. Hopefully, give a little education, Kim, or a little updates in the wine world. That's right. There's always things happening. So today, our first topic is from Forbes.com, and it's about U.S. alcohol consumers regularly buying wine. And Kim, that's a great thing, right? That is for a us. great. It's a really good thing for us. <laughs> so they were saying 45% of U.S. alcohol consumers regularly buy wine. So I guess, Kim, they were looking at the breakdown of people that drink, what they drink, what they're buying. Right. And the total number of U.S. adults who are regular consumers of alcoholic beverages hasn't really changed all that much. The numbers that are often quoted in a number of different places are that about two-thirds of American adults are drinkers of some sort of alcoholic beverage. Now, this can be anywhere from they only have a couple of glasses a year, maybe at celebrations, to maybe people who drink a little too much than is good for them. But it's I always have found it interesting that a third of U.S. adults don't drink anything at all. That, yeah. Yeah. But I can see that's it. just, you know, from my perspective. But those numbers are, are pretty, seem pretty consistent. And like you said, Kim, they, they were saying 66% of adults consume alcohol. And people always say to me, oh, you're you're in the liquor business. It's great. Every, you know, everybody's drinking. But there's, like you said, a lot of people do not drink. And then the population you sell to has to be 21 plus. So the percent of people is really small when you look at it overall. Right. So the other things they were saying in here is the wine buying was shared equally between men and women. So equally, men drink as much as women drink. But they didn't, I don't think, break that down by wine, did they? Or they, they just said that total? women were a little bit more likely to be purchasing wine, whereas men were a little more likely to be purchasing spirits, which I thought was an interesting breakdown. But it doesn't seem to be too broad of a variability there. I can see the 21s. It's new. Right. So they're, they're buying, but you know, up to 39, those just seem to be cons- the consumers. Right. And those seem to be the growth areas of age from this study that folks buy a little bit less wine when they're in their 20s. And then as they approach their late 20s and their early 30s, they, they buy a little bit more. And then it seemed to steady out as people entered their 40s and, and up. So it was, I thought it was an interesting part of the article and that it seemed like wine buyers, once people became wine drinkers, they didn't shift to something else. Once you're a wine buyer and a wine drinker, you're kind of hooked. And for us, that's a good thing. That's us. That's us, right? That's <laughs> us. Yeah, and they did also mention that, and it was good timing because it was another article that was out recently, but they did mention that California, Washington, and Oregon produce the most wine. And California alone is like 86% right. of the American wine production. But the Northeast region actually buys more wine. So right. that this wasn't consumes, which was strange. It was who buys the most wine. And then recently, there was an article about which states drink the most wine. And 
And it was actually, I think, Idaho per capita was consuming the most oh, wine. Oh, per capita. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. there's different ways to look at it, but it's all wine new. So right. we like that. And we do, you know, when you are looking at numbers like this and surveys like this, you do need to be careful about what they actually are reporting. So yeah, per capita consumption is different than most purchased because if you're looking at someplace like New York, you know, you have New York State and New York City in, in there, that population is huge. So looking at per capita consumption would be very different than looking at total purchases of wine in the state of New York. Yeah. So like you said, Kim, they were saying in thousands of gallons, California is number one by like 148,000 gallons of consumption, I guess, mm-hmm. but they don't buy the most, which is, I, I didn't understand how they relate that. But like you said, maybe they're drinking capita, all what they're making. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange. And then Massachusetts was in like the 28,000 uh, thousand liter. Where so are it, we percentage wise? It, it as was, far as it was like, actually fairly low because I think New York was like sixty-seven thousand gallons, and we were at twenty-eight, so pretty far down the hmm. list, I would say. Which we always thought we were one of the higher. Yeah, I always feel like Massachusetts consumers. when they when there are um, numbers that are released about you know what states buy the most or drink the most. I feel like we're always at sort of like I don't know seven or eight, but you're saying we're a little bit it's, lower it's now. It's lower according huh. to the numbers of of states that uh, the most wine, hmm. but but you know Idaho because of the per capita. Right. So. And New York, New Jersey are up there. California is up there. And I think Illinois is up yeah, there too, Florida, just because of the Florida, Chicago market. California. I think that has a lot to do with the population states, mm-hmm. right? So, sure. Uh, the other thing, Kim, they were talking about here is that consumers in general seek a deal 40% of the time, but alcohol consumers only seek a deal 16% of the time. I thought this was interesting too. Well, when we talk about wine, and I know when we talk to our customers and our clients about wine, there are other factors that come into play than just, am I getting a great deal. A lot of wines can be viewed as commodity wines. So you can get a bottle of, I don't know, Barefoot anywhere and you, you sort of price comparison, doing price comparison shopping for those. But then there are other things that are smaller, handcrafted, more specialty bottles that maybe are coming from a more unique area and have different things going for it other than, hey, what's the price point? So I think for wine, those things need to be taken into consideration as well. I was wondering if that had to do with what a topic we talked about in the past, the coupon thing that in mass it's not over-the-counter coupons, so maybe that's why they're not looking for deals because yeah. they can't It's harder to find a deal. deal. Yeah, it's harder to find a deal. And they don't want to take the time maybe to mail in something. Sure. So I think that makes that makes a whole lot of sense, too. But going on, the you were talking about brands, Kim. They also said only 25% of the value brands are seen as value, which, did you see that part about the brands? Mm. Is that I, what that, your interpretation was? That struck was? me as a little strange, too. That they only feel that brands are value? Is that how you were interpreting it? Because I, I, I just saw the yeah, figure 20%. Yeah, I don't know. I, maybe it has to do with most of the wine that is being, I think, purchased and is considered sort of a value brand is still not, it's not super duper cheap. It's not like you're buying something for 99 cents, you know? Yeah, they it's, still, it's still a, a product that does sort of have luxury connotations, even if it only costs $6 a bottle. But these are are things that you know you do have to generally pay a little bit more money for. So to me, I guess I was interpreting it as they only see a brand 25% of the time is a good value, which hmm. to me, I think is a good thing because they may be looking at, like you said, the smaller production yeah. stuff like they that. They did sort of state that there was a little bit less brand loyalty for wine consumers than for other things. And I know we talk about this with beer a lot, that there's a lot of brand loyalty for beer drinkers. And we sometimes do see that for wine drinkers. There are certain people who have got a certain wine and that's what they love and that's their go-to 
but I do feel that there is a little more flexibility for people to try new things, especially if it's in a category or a style that they are already familiar with. So even kind of the idea of brands when it comes to wine is a little more of a fluid definition. And in one of the other articles we read, they were talking about Italy as sort of a brand and what defines Italian wines. And and for a lot of people, like the region or the name of the wine is more the brand. So I think for consumers, there's a little bit more of a question mark as far as what's the brand here. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. (laughs) The other thing that they talked about, Kim, is we've talked about it a ton in the past about the link between marijuana and wine. And they were saying that if marijuana was legal, 5% said they would stop drinking wine to go to marijuana, which... Does that mean those people are just drinking wine just for the alcoholic buzz? That was my question about that. Yeah, well, they in all the studies we saw in the past were saying people would stop consuming alcohol and they're going to marijuana, but this is kind of saying that that seemed like it's low, and then they also said... Do you think the 5% is low? Yeah, I think it's low, but maybe that the people that are leaving alcohol going to marijuana might be liquor or beer. I would assume more liquor Mm -hmm. people. But then they said 29% of the people who buy wine are totally opposed to marijuana anyway. I thought that was very interesting. So I thought that number was high and it it might say a lot about the wine consumer, right? Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I like seeing these studies. I like seeing some of these hard numbers being put to what are the consumption rates and what are the areas where people are buying wine and, and then also kind of what are they buying. And I like the, it's a, it's an American study too. A lot of times we right. find in the UK, the yeah. Australia, and you're like, well, how do you base that on what's going on here? But it was an American study, correct? Yes. Forbes? Okay. All right. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. As you know, we love to talk about trends in the wine world for you, and we have a couple of different articles that brought up this exact topic. Uh, the first was an article in Vine Pair, which is a publication that we uh, reference back to an awful lot, asking 10 sommeliers what they they feel the worst trends in wine are. So I thought this was great because we, we often like to look at the positive, uh, but it's sometimes it's nice to kind of flip it around and look at what are the things that maybe aren't going so great in our uh, in our industry. And I like that they asked uh, wine professionals, people who dealing with wine and talking to consumers about wine is their day in and day out livelihood. So I, uh, I really liked the spin on this one. Yeah. So they said these are the worst trends. And then they said, this is why they should die. They right. should go away. These are the trends and we want them to go away and we always talk about the the definition or people calling themselves psalm so but in this article to me it's just like people who are in the service industry with wine and this is what what they think right. so, so I these think are good. restaurant wine people who sell bottles at two customers in a restaurant setting. And the first one was one that I've been saying for a long time, which is get rid of this idea that rosé is just a summer wine. And we talk an awful lot about the seasonality about of wine. And there are some things that seem to have more of, of a season to them. You know, people think of New Year's and Christmas and holidays as sparkling wine time. And a lot of people do consider summertime to be like, hey, this is the time when we should be drinking rosé. But there was one psalm on here who was like, throw that out the window. Rosé should be consumed 
consumed all year long. And I love that idea. Yeah. I mean, it's trending in retail. And, and if you're a SOM and a restaurant, it limits your list. I mean, if you're taking this uh, a rosé off your list in the cooler months, it, mm-hmm. it limits what you can sell. It may limit food pairings, right? So there's things that match great with rosé. There's mm-hmm. no reason to stop selling. Ourselves. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to, if people are going to drink white wine all year long, and, and of course people are going to drink white wine all year long, people will drink rosé all year long. And yeah, exactly like you said, you know, there are so many really nice food pairings with rosé and the desire for this style of wine is out there and it definitely should be kept on people's lists all year long and in people's stores too. We do, oh, I remember seeing, you know, the, our rosé selection go way down once the summer was over, but it is nice to see it as a year-round product in stores now. Yeah, you used to phase it out uh, at winter and then wait till the spring selections mm-hmm. come back in, but now you really have to look at keeping a selection on the shelf all year long. Right. Um, another one was <laughs> the, this trend towards what they were calling gimmicky packaging. So putting wine in cans and wine in boxes and and uh, other sorts of alternative packaging, shall we say. Yeah, so they they did not uh, want to pull the ring on a can of wine, correct? Right. They say stick to the traditional hearing the, the pop of a cork. And I totally can see this from a restaurant perspective. And it is a little different if you're coming at it as a retailer versus if you're coming at it as someone who restaurant job because there is the presentation factor and there is this kind of romance behind opening up a bottle of wine and doing the presentation and you know pouring something special for someone. So I can see absolutely why this would be a trend that restaurant psalms would <laughs> would have some issue with. Yeah, great point. And because in retail packaging trends are key to, to look at what's trending to get it on the shelf. Right. Whereas like you were saying, in the restaurant industry, you probably don't want to deal with boxes and cans. And so you stick with the traditional, mm-hmm. right? So what was next, Ken? The uh, wines by the glass must go. Well, it was boring or wines, boring by, wines the by the glass must yeah. go. So this was interesting. I This was the idea that restaurants should be a little more forward thinking with their by the glass program, that they shouldn't just have the regular old standard that are expected on your wines by the glass list. Move away from just Chardonnay and Pinot Grigio and Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Noir and Cabernet. Put some exciting things on there. And I think that this is a bit of a double-edged sword. Yes, a restaurant can really define itself by its wines by the glass program if they want to do something unique and different, if they have the staff that can then show off those wines. But then on the other side of it, sometimes there is that safety in having wines that consumers can look at and know what those wines are all about instead of having to really go to the Psalms. So I think for this, this is a difference between those restaurants that do have dedicated wine people who know their stuff and restaurants who maybe don't necessarily have wine people who know their stuff. Yeah, this is definitely a restaurant thing because you can't get wines by the glass in your your local liquor store, but it does set kind of a tone of stores want to change the variety too. You know, do you want different varietals instead of the same old stuff have a selection but i think what annoys me is i go into a restaurant i'm looking for something unique and yeah it's chardonnay it's pinot noir it's cabernet i want to explore and there's nothing there so i think what they're saying here is an excellent trend i also agree people should get away from give me one or two other selections i'm going to play devil's advocate here and be that person who is saying well okay the people who are saying that boring wines by the glass lists have to go are the people who know a whole heck of a lot about wine we talk 
talk about wine all the time. This is our business. And this is the business of these psalms who are doing these recommendations. But what about people who don't want to experiment, who aren't looking for something unique or unusual, that just want to get a decent glass of wine? So I can kind of see both sides right. of this coin. I see what you're saying. Because the, the, the everyday person who maybe only has a glass of wine when they go out mm-hmm. is, is going to be pretty much afraid of right. seeing something they're not familiar with. So, yeah, so the same wine list that this psalm is calling boring and safe as a negative, somebody else coming into their restaurant who doesn't know a whole lot about wine is looking at this safe wine list and they're feeling comfortable with it. So I don't know. There's yeah, there's the a little psalm, bit of a divide there. Unless the psalm is really personable, interactive with the consumer and you say, oh, I'm looking for a Chardonnay and they're going to say, okay, you, we don't have that by the glass, but try this because right. it's going to go great with this. So. Right. And that's where it makes sense if you have that person who will be that go-between between the list and the consumer. So that's, I think, where these more unique wines by the glass programs can really be, be something special. Yeah, so the next one I thought was funny, Kim, because it's saying the worst wine trends are that trends need to go. <laughs> right. right. So make your own opinion. Don't matter. But again, you can whatever. only really make your opinion if you have a little bit of knowledge. So there's, there, you know, there's a little bit of elitism, I think, baked into this article because some of these psalms are saying, oh, just experiment and just try new things and don't be afraid of wackiness. But, you know, that doesn't Stick work for everybody. Yeah. yeah, that doesn't work for everybody. So I don't know. I, mm. well, different, <laughs> different people's opinions. Absolutely. So. That's why we talk about yeah. it. Yeah. And that's what I mean, we're always trying to do when we talk to you is to make your own opinions. We're going to give you what's trending and you've, you kind of experiment with it. Uh, that's the best way to learn. Next, Kim, they were talking about natural wines need to stop. And this is, we've been talking about this. It's a trend, these natural wine movements. And usually the Psalms are on this. Right. It sounds like sick of it as well. Uh, but I think that they're more sick of bad, quote unquote, bad natural wines. So this I thought was very interesting because- Did you th- interpret that as I, bad quality or yes. that it's a- it's a No, I interpret it as bad quality. Yeah. Like that natural wines shouldn't be given a pass. That just because a wine is natural and is sort of quote unquote trendy right now, that doesn't excuse it from being a good wine. It still has to taste good. And even if it, like if it's super funky because it's made in a different style in a different manner than I guess you could say more commercially produced wines. There's the unique value of having something really wacky in the bottle. But if at the end of the day, that wine doesn't taste good to the consumer, what they're saying here is that wine shouldn't get a pass just because it says it's a natural wine. And a lot of these products, when you open, you might have a case of natural wine. Seven of them might be showing fine. But do you want to take that chance? Right. There's a lot of variability. That variability is part of what makes natural wines natural wines. The producers are saying, hey, we're just letting the wine kind of make itself. And yeah, you might get a few bad bottles. And for some people, that is okay because of kind of the coolness factor of, hey, this is, you know, a natural wine. But for other people who are looking for more consistency, this is a real problem. And I like to side with the consumer with these kind of things where if the wine doesn't taste good to you, it's not a good wine for you. And those of us who taste a lot of wine, I think are better about stepping back a little bit and being like, okay, I don't necessarily like this wine, but I can still recognize its qualities and its values. And it might not taste necessarily good to me, but I can see why somebody else would like it. But for a natural wine, if it's gone off and then for the producer to be like, oh, that's just the way that it's supposed to be. It's I think it still has to taste good to the people who are trying to drink it. Yeah, in this case, this, the sommelier is serving the wine and it's probably a pain in the neck for them if every other bottle's bad yeah, and they have to deal with telling people, yeah, well, that's what it's supposed to taste like. Or why does it taste 
tastes different than the last time mm-hmm. I had it. So yeah, I can I can totally see what they're saying on this. And the last one that was touched on was wines made from things other than grapes, just calling themselves wine. And I don't feel like we see a whole lot of this in restaurants. And I'm not really sure where this point was coming from, because I don't necessarily see this as an issue in the industry. Although we do, especially here in Massachusetts, do see fruit wine, but the labeling has to be very precise on the label. So if you are buying a bottle of wine and it just says wine on the label, that has to be all grapes, even though we talk about wine flavors and aromas in fruity terms. You know, we might say, hey, this has hints of blackberry or this is like apple and peach. That doesn't mean that those flavors are added to the wine. So what these psalms are talking about is wines that either are made with fruit juice. So say someplace like Neshoba Winery in Massachusetts does a lot of fruit wines, but they put it very clearly on their wine. This is an apple wine. This is a pear wine. This is a blackberry wine. Um, so that's sort of a different category or are wines adding quote unquote natural flavors to their wines to produce like a peach prosecco because we do see some of those or I know you had posted about some fruit wines in your store or store with right. wines with local like fruit, fruit added to fruit, them yeah so I thought this was uh yeah an interesting topic to bring up yeah and I don't know if this scares me or excites me that we agree so much on this topic oh, wow. because I totally that agree that why do Psalms care about this they, they're not serving usually fruit wines like I you know. said Kim it, yeah. it, I'm sure people are not bringing them this style of, of wine there must be a backstory to yeah. this one I think I someone probably a approached the psalm and tried to push something crazy and yeah. they're like no but maybe it is those like flavored proseccos because there are a lot of sparkling wines that have some flavors added to them that are kind of on the lower end of the price spectrum that people are drinking that are looking for something with a little bit of sweetness and fruitiness to it so maybe that's where this yeah, one's that, coming from that but. could make sense because usually they want to add their own liqueur mm-hmm. to some sort of spot sure, to make a cocktail to make more and to make more money on the on the charge of the drink too so that's a good point You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow past episodes of our show, find us on iTunes and search The Wonderful World of Wine. Keeping on the topic of wine trends, the Washington Post had an article about a decade of wine trends and basically this author was looking back he's 10 years writing articles and what has been trending over the years so they were talking first off he was talking about back in 2008 there was only 6,000 wineries in the U.S. and now there's approximately 13,000 wineries in the U.S. so that was the first big trend so trend was wineries are growing and we see that a lot of times locally where things are popping up all the time right and not just wineries in areas that we traditionally think of as wine growing uh, locations in America. You know, we always think of California because the vast majority of wine that is made in the U.S. is made in California, grown in California. But we are also seeing growth in other places. So there is this movement towards sort of drinking local wherever you happen to be. So we see growth of new wineries in New York and in Virginia and in Texas and here in Massachusetts, all over the place. Connecticut, too. I know there has been exactly this type of growth in all these places. 
places. So it is, uh, yeah, very interesting to see that over the last 10 years, the number of wineries in the U.S. has doubled. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, and our, t- our time sharing the wine trends with the listeners, we've covered, I know we've covered Texas, we've covered Arizona, cover what, Missouri. So the trend is, is true. Over the years, California's huge, but now people are looking at other things, which brought into the next trend they were saying over the decade was the world of wine is huge. So people are now starting to experiment, venture out, finding what is out there. And I love this one, Kim, because that's the whole base of the show is the wonderful world of wine and to get out there and to explore. So one of the biggest wine trends and changes that we've seen in the last 10 years is closures to a bottle of wine. And it really started with folks looking for alternatives to cork. And there was a lot of experimentation going on in the late 90s and early 2000s. And it really does seem like winemakers and wineries have kind of landed on uh, the uh, screw cap as the, the next you know, big way to close up a bottle of wine. Yeah, and it was all about over the decade, the screw caps have become accepted. Right. And, yeah, the acceptance of the thing that we always talk about, Kim, is telling people it doesn't mean it's a cheap wine. And we explain the science of why it's good, which was interesting because the previous article we talked about, the Psalm said packaging trends should die. So, I mean, this confirms it's a trend over the decade, mm-hmm. but it also confirms that the trend is being accepted by a lot of people. And I don't think that these alternative packaging packaging ideas are going anywhere. I don't think people are going to turn around and just revert only to using bottles. I think we are going to see the growth of more bag in a box, more cans and juice and box. Juice, yeah, these te- juice tetra packs, boxes. yeah, and, and little juice boxy things. So, I think that this is something to um, definitely to watch out for over the coming years. I think it's one of those personal preference trends. You know, people either like the can or they like the small box or they like the big box and that's what starts trends, right. different packs. Right. And we'll see where where they go and if there are new ones that uh, that are on the horizon as well. The next idea that he um, was talking about as far as movement within the wine industry was sort of this reliance on sommeliers as influencers and as professions to recommend wines and to sort of move the growth of certain brands. And we do talk about this from time to time. It's like, who are the people who are driving the trends? He seems to have landed on sommeliers as a big part of this. Yeah, restaurants are big. What's trending with food? Food, mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, it, based on that, Kim, I, I, I mean, I have my own thing. I think I see trends. What, what have you seen really stick out trending? In, I really do years? see this interest in food and wine pairings does seem to be a big thing. I get a lot of questions about what goes, what wine goes with what food. And this would be, you know, a direct relationship between restaurant dining and drinking wine in restaurants and, and those two things coming together and then having someone at the restaurant who is, you know, kind of the advisor to you when you're out there having your meal. So I do get the idea that the food and wine thing together is trending. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think the educational and tasting interest trends, but I think we always have to keep up on what are people interested. First, it's they might want just basic education and mm-hmm. then it trends more like you said, food and wine. Now I want to learn pairings and I want to I want to learn unique things. Right. right? And and there I've sort of seen this trend of getting away from kind of the, the traditional trends or the traditional pairings. There does seem to be this willingness to explore and to try new things. And and I always tell people that there are some basic rules that you want to follow when you're pairing food and wine, but that you don't necessarily have to stick to what has always already been done. Experiment, eat what you like, drink what you like, see how they go together, and then use that as kind of a launching pad to new things that would be interesting.
question for you. And I think especially as American cuisine changes and as Americans are more receptive to dishes and foods and ingredients and styles of cooking that are coming from other places that haven't traditionally been quote unquote American food, we do see how wine is adapting and being paired with things that never have been paired with it before. So I think that's cool and exciting. Yeah. And one, one of the other things I look at as far as retail is varietal trends. So what grapes people are looking for? Is it the same grapes they were looking for last year? And that also impacts, you know, what's trending in these these food and wine pairing world because people might be seeing articles more on pairing with Cabernet and they want Cabernet. Mm-hmm. So so what are you seeing as some of the new things that people are looking, looking for? I think people are getting away more and more from white varietals and want to experiment with more red and they're going to different sweet wines than the traditionally we talked in the past about huh. Riesling. They're getting off of Riesling, going to something else. But a lot of the trends I see is based on what people find on the internet. So I'll see people come in and buying something all of a sudden like, why? is so many people hitting Pinot Grigio. And then it's a, oh, there's a Pinot Grigio Sangria recipe out there, uh, that type of thing. Okay. So I think the, the internet has a lot of impact on varietal trending. But I have to look at it as far as shelf space. So of course. So what people want, do I back away from Cabernet, go more into this? I know varietals that for me drop off. So I can see that also playing into the education and the food and wine pairing trending as right, well. Right. And um, just the last thing that he touched on, which also goes along with our educational perspective on wine was talking about how culture and history play a part in wine and in people's wine appreciation. And it was very interesting to look at his take on it, which was that there's a lot more that you can can taste these days that are made by new types of winemakers and new people coming into the industry and folks that traditionally their families were grape growers now moving into being the winemaker from all over the world. And I think that this is exciting because it brings different perspectives to wine and different perspectives to winemaking. Yeah, and it all leads to just more stories to mm-hmm. sell the wine or educate about the wine. So I totally agree with that, Kim. It's anything more of, of a background that we can tell people to get them excited or interested in and the wine. And feel connected. You know, a lot of yeah. people want that story behind the, their bottle of wine. And having new and interesting personalities making the wine um, just gives us more stories for those. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine today. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on iTunes by searching The Wonderful World of Wine, and we'll talk to you again next week. Cheers. Wine, wine, wine.